from the studio of KPSU Portland, and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Oregon's forests are without a doubt one of the state's most celebrated features and are integrally intertwined with the state's history. While today one can venture into Mount Hood National Forest with a quick drive or a leisurely bike ride, such day trips as these would hardly be possible without the roads that get us there. Many of the forest access roads in the state are also crucial to the firefighters tackling wildfires as well as the logging industry. Negotiating these uses alongside the aims of preservationists and recreational enthusiasts has been one of Oregon's enduring historical challenges. The Civilian Conservation Corps' work in the 1930s had profound effect on how these often competing interests interact with Oregon's forest. Our guest today is a historian who's investigating this relationship between roads and forests, and who argues that one of the CCC's legacies is that a forest can now be seen without ever having to leave a car. Joining us today to discuss how this happened and how it shapes our experiences and views of the forest is Taylor Rose. Taylor's a second-year graduate student of history at Portland State University. His research focuses on public history, history of the U.S. West, and environmental history in the late 19th and 20th centuries. He's currently writing his thesis, which examines the growth of multi-use roads in the forested mountains just east of Portland from the Columbia Gorge Highway to Clackamas River logging roads. Taylor holds a B.A. in Anthropology and Political Science from the University of Florida, Gainesville. Prior to arriving to Portland in 2014 for his graduate studies, he worked in historic preservation in San Francisco and Denver. He also spent a year doing wild, wildland fire management in north-central Colorado. Welcome to Beyond Footnotes, Taylor. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I guess we should start um, by asking you which roads you're studying, and um, maybe tell us a little bit why you decided to focus on those roads in particular. Uh, sure. So um, I'm looking at the roads within Mount Hood National Forest, which is directly east of Portland. Um, I'm looking at basically all the roads that were constructed between um, 1912, which is when the Columbia River Highway was established, when the ground was broken on it, and um, 1964, which was when the Wilderness Act was passed. Um, and the reason I choose this um, to conclude my narrative is because the Wilderness Act, a big part of it was the fact that they designated these areas as specifically roadless. So start out with a lot of enthusiasm for those roads, eventually not quite as enthusiastic about the roads. So I'm interested in, in all the different types of roads that exist in Mount Hood National Forest. And uh, the main reason I'm interested in them is because I, like many other Portlanders, drive them a lot. Um, you know, this, this summer was especially great uh, with it being so warm. I made a couple trips up to Mount Hood. This is actually my first year in Oregon. I moved out here from Colorado. And um, it's been a great kind of summer to explore, you know, the, the forest that was just east of here. Um, driving those roads is a, is a big part of that experience. So that's kind of why I chose that topic. 
Cool. Um, so you said 194 or 1912 when the Columbia River Road was built. What was force access like before this and maybe even before the automobile? Yeah, well, it was, uh, in a word, very difficult. It was not impossible. There were Indian roads that, or Indian trails that existed throughout the forest um, for thousands of years. But um, in terms of motorized access, um, well, prior to the advent of the automobile, uh, there wasn't quite as much of a desire to go up into the woods for this sort of leisure activity. It was usually an extended sort of trip that would take anywhere from a couple days to a couple weeks. Um, and often, you know, on a day like today where it's rainy and it's, it's damp and it's wet, uh, you, you're going to have a, a lot of mud. And so that's, that's a big part of it. You know, I found this great book from the turn of the century that's about a trip um, by a, a Portlander up into the to, to government camp. And that's a trip that today takes, what, like an hour, hour and a half, and back then, this trip took something closer to a full day, two days. This guy is talking about that it actually took him to get from Sandy to government camp. It took him a day and a half because the roads were so bad. So um, it was, yeah, it was, it was quite difficult. So I guess on the leisure activity in the automobile, um, maybe you can help me find out like when people would take the cars out there would they just go for a drive and then come back or what what was the usual leisure activity with an automobile yeah well so the drive itself was actually a big activity it wasn't as much okay let's hop in the car and let's go out to a trailhead and then let's hike from there that was definitely a part of it but actually the drive itself was um an adventure Mm -hmm. so um when the columbia columbia river highway was developed that was uh kind of the road was part and parcel of the experience. So um, the road was constructed to both provide access to those areas and also um, to kind of frame the experience. So that's why you have the road kind of winding past waterfalls and going across bridges and that sort of thing. So who built the Columbia River Highway and sort of why? Why was, the, why was that chosen? Yeah, so uh, that's kind of one of the interesting things about Columbia River Highway uh, is the fact that it was primarily a private and um, somewhat of a municipal effort on the part of Portlanders. Um, despite the fact that it went through um, national forest land during one little portion of it, um, the... The, the funds primarily came from such notable figures as Simon Benson, whose, uh, whose old house is actually on Portland State's campus now, which is pretty funny, kind of walking past that. But um, So it was a booster. Um, it was a booster road. It was a lot of private funds, um, a lot of uh, support from municipal Portland government, um, but primarily it was a bunch of rich men who thought that they would be able to profit from this road and who thought that it would be, you know, just a great um, kind of extension of the Portland metropolis and a way to connect between Portland and Hood River. And it also served a commercial purpose in that it connected Western Oregon with Eastern Oregon. So was, you know, you mentioned that a lot of the funding for uh, that highway in particular came from private investors in Portland. Did it seem um, from your research that there was a big interest in 
developing those sorts of roads from, I guess, ordinary Portlanders who maybe weren't the ones funding it? Oh, definitely. Um, there's a, since since white people started um, settling in the Willamette Valley, there was this kind of infatuation with the Columbia Gorge in particular. I mean, it's just such a majestically beautiful sort of space. And uh, there's tons of, of historic photographs that you can find um, of, you know, just kind of the, the scenery of the Columbia Gorge. And so there was always the, this interest in providing access for everyone to those areas. Um, and so in some ways, the automobile was, uh, had a kind of a democratizing force in that um, once it became a little more affordable for the middle and lower classes, particularly with um, the development of the Model T and just kind of mass-produced automobiles, um, once people started to get a taste of it, uh, they were all about it. So a lot of the um, kind of private desires to um, construct this highway went hand-in-hand with um, more of the just popular enthusiasm for um, outdoor leisure and for just kind of auto tourism in general. So sort of um, shifting over to the, you know, away from the roads to the forest side of things, what was early forest management like? Um, I guess, what did that look like? Was it um, sort of up to people that were privately holding their lands and the rest was sort of I guess, do what you will with it, or were there was there a lot of effort to um, actually manage those lands early on? Yeah, so um, forests, uh, in terms of uh, public forests, started being set aside in the 1890s. Um, so the first public forest that we see in Oregon is actually the Bull Run Reserve, which is where we get our drinking water from, and that's why it was set aside. Um, the reason why it was set aside was to the reason why they set the whole watershed watershed aside rather than just the uh, stream itself um, is because the trees and the landscape, uh, the ecology of the area, determines kind of the quality of the water, um, and so the area around the watershed was set aside to protect the purity of the water. So that was a big factor in setting aside forests, forest reserves, as they were known, um, in the 1890s. But then <clears throat> in the year after uh, Bull Run was set aside, actually a much larger proportion of um, the Cascades. And in, in Oregon, it was actually pretty much the entirety of um, the Cascade Mountains from the uh, Columbia River all the way down to the Klamath Basin. Uh, was set aside, and that was to protect it from private timber interests. So the idea behind that was to kind of conserve the usage of these natural resources. So the reason why the forests were set aside was not for recreational leisure. It was actually because they wanted to protect from all the trees being cut down, which eventually those two ideas more or less dovetailed together. But for the 1890s, 19, and then the early 20th century, um, pretty much all the way up to the New Deal era, um, kind of the, the, the way that the Forest Service uh, went about protecting these forest reserves, which in 1905 became actually called National Forests, what we know them as now, um, their role was more of a kind of custodial or um, 
a management sort of um, job. So what they were doing there was not developing the spaces for um, recreational access. They were they were delimiting the boundaries. Actually, in the 1890s, a lot of it was just surveying and figuring out, you know, how big these spaces were, what was the topography like, um, what was previous access like, that sort of thing. And then um, a big part of um, what they were doing, especially after 1910, when there were some big fires in Montana and Idaho, um, was actually protecting the forests from forest fire uh, to protect the longevity of the forests. So the responsibility of the Forest Service and kind of the reason for these national forests has changed over time. And that's really uh, kind of one of the fundamental ideas that I'm interested in in my thesis is um, at what point did these spaces start to become utilized for recreational purposes? At what point did the Forest Service start to um, maybe not necessarily give in to, but um, kind of dovetail their interests with the uh, recreating public? Um, And so one of the most interesting things, I think, one of the exceptional things, I think, about Mount Hood National Forest in particular is the fact that it's so close to a big metropolitan area, Portland. Um, So you see in in other places like in Denver, in Los Angeles, and in Seattle to a certain extent, you see um, these national forests being set aside for recreational purpose or they're uh they were originally set aside for for, as forest reserves but they became kind of um recreational spaces not unlike the national parks which is kind of those two agencies had a little bit of a back and forth about their responsibilities um and so there was always this uh not necessarily conflicting interest between the two but there was definitely a little bit of antagonism between the two so it's changed over time so in our introduction, we talked about the Civilian Conservation Corps, and that kind of brings us up to the 30s. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what the mission of the, the CCC was, and I guess well, how forest management changed as a result of their work. Yeah, definitely. So um, kind of the New Deal era in general. So the CCC, which stands for the Civilian Conservation Corps, um, they were one of many New Deal Um, public works projects. You have um, the WPA, which a lot of people know, especially in Portland. They did a lot of murals. They did a lot of um, bridge building, those sorts of things. Um, But they were a little bit more urban-based. So in the CCC, on the other hand, they uh, worked almost exclusively on public lands, public rural lands in particular. And um, so they were established in 1933, Um, by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, What he was doing there was responding to a number of different uh, needs and desires in the United States at the time, mostly um, concerned with alleviating joblessness. Um, And so kind of what the CCC meant for the Forest Service in particular, and I will note uh, first that the Forest Service were the ones who, at least in the first couple years, 33 through about 1936, the Forest Service were, uh, by and large, the the ones who utilized the CCC the most. Um, so their labor was uh, mostly on national forest land. And so what they did 
is um, kind of built upon those ideas of protecting uh, the forests. So they were used in a lot of um, wildland fire fighting, um, initial attack sorts of things. So like in the t- uh, the Tillamook fire of 1933, the big blow up of uh, 1933, that was um, the first instance of the CCC being used for initial attack fire management purposes. But as um, as the years went on, the uses of the CCC kind of developed into a variety of different tasks. And um, mainly what this allowed for the Forest Service was a little bit of experimentation. You know, there had been all of these different interests, um, you know, for example, the, the Columbia River Highway highlighted the fact that there were all these recreational motorists interested in using national forests for recreational purposes. But in the 20s, um, the Forest Service was a little uneasy about using funding for those sorts of purposes because they didn't want to step on the toes of the National Park Service. Um, They also didn't want too many conflicting interests, uh, especially with private timber companies. But in the 30s, with um, kind of this influx of labor and influx of, of money, of funding, federal funding, they were allowed to experiment. So on Mount Hood in particular, what they did there <clears throat> was they um, they didn't do as much of the big highway projects like they did in the teens and 20s. Um, so it wasn't about building this big road through this previously um, undeveloped area. It was more a matter of um, developing the spaces that they already had access to. So a lot of the campsites that you see, especially along what is today US 26 up towards government camp, and then US 35, which hooks around the east side of the mountain and goes down to, to uh, Hood River. A bunch of those campsites, a bunch of those developed campsites were um, CCC projects. Uh, so they built a lot of the, you know, like picnic tables and a lot of the uh, kind of campsite areas. So a lot of the fire rings, that sort of thing. So they did a, a number of different tasks. Um, and, you know, you were talking earlier about how there's different uses for these roads. And so while they abstained from building big recreational public highways in the way that they did in the teens and 20s in the forest, uh, what they did build were roads called truck trails. And those were very basic dirt roads. Um, and those were for fire access. So that was a big part of what they were doing across the country was um, kind of building up the infrastructure for fire access. Um, So these roads were, these truck trails, as they were called, were meant for specific administrative purposes. But another very interesting thing about that is they didn't close these roads off to the public. So they were used by recreational motorists. So you'll find, or I have found um, in my research, kind of tales of people taking taking onto these roads and kind of exploring some of the areas that previously you'd have to hire a pack team or hike into that would take, you know, a day or two. So they did a lot is what they did. And um, the biggest thing is uh, kind of just the diversity of what they did um, and the way that they kind of killed several birds with 
with one stone. Yeah. Um, so you kind of just touched on this, but what role did the logging industry play in the development of these roads, and in particular the CCC's planning? Sure. Yeah, so um, on the f- on Forest Service lands up until the... Um, the post-war era, post-World War II era, um, the interests were mostly peripheral, meaning that the there was a lot of private land that was bought up by timber companies kind of all around the borders of, of Mount Hood National Forest. So you have things going on um, in the, what's the, the Bridal Vale area, so that would be um, just kind of west of the Columbia River Highway. Um, so that's kind of one of the interesting juxtapositions that you have there is a uh, space like Larch Mountain or Multnomah Falls, where on one side of the mountain you have um, actually a, a hiking trail that goes up, and then on the other side you have logging going on. And that was something that was happening um, even as early as the 1890s. So um, as the years go on, again, mainly what private logging companies, um, the way that they were going about interacting with the Forest Service was more a matter of influence, um, suggesting that these lands be preserved for posterity, with the idea that eventually these um, these forests would actually be used as kind of a safety valve for, um, for the demand side of, of lumber. So, and they, you know, they, whether or not they predicted it, they predicted it right because in, after World War II, there was an, well, during World War II, actually, there was an incredible boom in demand for lumber, um, for, for building crates to ship things to Europe, um, building airplanes, building all different sorts of things. And then in the post-war era, you see um, a boom in housing construction, which all uses lumber. And so really, uh, you don't see the lands within Mount Hood National Forest being leased to logging companies until the post-war era. There's a little bit going on there, but for the most part, um, the Forest Service was just protecting that space uh, for posterity. But there was, a, there was logging going on, you know, all around, and um, the, the logging economy was a big part of of the Oregon economy at the turn of the century. It just hadn't quite bled into the national forest quite yet, or at least not Mount Hood National Forest. So with the U.S. Forest Service and on the topic of logging and the use of these roads, um, I wonder a a big name in the U.S. Forest Service is Gifford Pinchot and his role as the first pretty much steward or chief of the U.S. Forest Service. So would you say from... Your study that the 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 work that the Forest Service and the CCC did in the '30s um, was it were they trying to to follow his path or follow his recommendations or was there a shift um, in how the U.S. Forest Service was operating? Yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty tough question because a lot of that is kind of up to interpretation because um, you kind of have to understand. I mean, how much changed in just that one generation between. Um, when Gifford Pinchot was establishing the Forest Service in 1905, and then 30 years down the road, so to speak, um, you have the CCC coming about. So there was a lot of 
changes in ideas about how those lands should be used. Um, I think what I would rather do is kind of place what they were doing um, on this spectrum. You know, there's a, a lot of historians have analyzed the um, kind of the early years of public lands creation um, in the United States as this battle between preservationists and conservationists. And Gifford Pinchot would be in the latter category, meaning that he would be a conservationist. And then on the other hand, um, kind of the the key figure in the preservationist camp is John Muir. Um, and kind of the difference between the two, which in several moments came to a head when, you know, they couldn't really um, come to a, to a mutual conclusion. Um, you have John Muir saying, we need to preserve these spaces um, for their spiritual value, for their scenic value, and to a certain extent for their recreational value. On the other hand, you have Gifford Pinchot saying, well, what we have here is not as much these um, scenic spaces. Well, he did acknowledge the, the scenic beauty of the lands that he was talking about. He more um, conceptualized them in terms of their natural resource potential. So he was still coming at it from that we should conserve these natural resources. So he wasn't, um, he wasn't necessarily pandering to private interests in terms of saying, um, yeah, go ahead, take all these, take all these uh, trees, you know. But he also wasn't saying, let's keep these completely off limits. So the interesting thing about the CCC, uh, especially their road construction, is that it falls, you know, it falls into um, different places on the spectrum depending on what they were doing. So like the truck trails uh, example, <clears throat> what I was talking about before, you know, truck trails were there. They were built to provide access to, um, or excuse me, for um, fire management purposes. So in that sense, they were following the line of reasoning that Gifford Pinchot would have espoused. On the other hand, they were still available to, um, to recreational motorists and to those interested in the things that John Muir was interested in. Now, the uh, kind of paradoxical thing about that, um, you know, that about roads in particular is that once you build a road through a space, in some ways it um, calls into question all of those scenic values that John Muir um, loved so much and that many people do love so much. And so that was, um, as, as the 30s went on and as these spaces became developed, um, to a certain extent at the behest of the um, recreational public, there was kind of a um, second guessing of, of what these roads were all about. So that's where you see post-war um, kind of backtracking and questioning the utility of these roads and um, the ways in which they, to put it bluntly, spoil those um, what what were and still are to a certain extent conceived of as wilderness, you know, untrampled, pristine spaces. So yeah. So, um, I guess 
kind of looking in the 60s, I mean, um, the Wilderness Act in 1964, how did that affect these lands that, um, I guess, uh, if I'm understanding right, weren't maybe as heavily accessed during this time? Yeah, so um, kind of the, the idea behind the Wilderness Act, you have this growing um, kind of push and pull between preservationists and conservationists, if we may fall back into that dichotomy. Um, And um, as the years went on, the Forest Service kind of realized that they couldn't just ignore the preservationist side. And um, so you, so before the Wilderness Act happened, what you had was um, these debates over the idea of multi-use. So, you know, can you can you um, preserve these spaces by allowing different types of uses for them? Can you allow, you know, cattle grazing on them? Can you allow mining? But most importantly, can you both allow logging slash road construction and recreational usage at the same time? And um, kind of one of the things about the Wilderness Act that was so difficult to um, to kind of um, get legislation to approve was that what they were asking for was a single use. They were saying no roads, no logging, no mining. Um, you know, uh, it, it was it was the most exclusive um, preservation idea of these lands, and eventually, what the Wilderness Act came to signify was roadlessness. So you're setting off these spaces as being only accessible by either hiking into them or taking a pack team into it, which is kind of ironic in retrospect because you see over uh, 50 years, you know, at first the, the recreational public are champions of these, of these roads. So they're asking for these roads to be built. And then as those years go on, they start thinking, well, do we want roads through all of these spaces? And um, kind of the the Wilderness Act came to signify that, um, you know, backlash is kind of a harsh word, but um, just kind of that reappraisal of the value of roads. And it really came to signify um, this particular type of recreational usage that many consider to be today, I know to a certain extent I do, um, kind of the, the purest form of recreation. Going out with your boots, you know, taking some food out, and um, just kind of doing your thing out in nature. And you don't need um, a motorbike. You don't need, you know, all these different sorts of things that we associate with um, "Quote unquote civilization." So, yeah. So I guess that brings us to now, like the the outdoor excursions that so many Portlanders experience and look forward to on the weekends and their breaks. Um, can you give us some insight on how much our recreational use of the forest has pretty much been shaped over the years, or how it's been shaped over the years by roads? I mean, um, I'm just thinking that with 
that the, the legacy of these roads, like you said in the in your, your what you're working on in your thesis, is that we can see them um, from a car, and that's it is a very poignant statement. So yeah. I guess yeah. um, how do we how do how do you measure the recreational use that Portlanders now see the forest with with the preservationist aspect of limiting roads? Well, so I think the the best example of this is actually Bagby Hot Springs. Um, you know, a place that many Portlanders know and love. Um, I actually, on a side note, have never been up there. I would love to go up there someday, but um, it's it's easily accessible. You know, it requires, what, like a two-mile hike into it or something like that. Yeah. Um, but you basically drive up to it, you know, you and you take your stuff out there and you, you hike right into it uh, until World War II to access Bagby Hot Springs, that would have taken something like a two or three day hike into it. Um, before, um, you know, it was, it was, it was something that was already, um, kind of touted as this amazing recreational resource, um, within kind of Portland's recreational hinterland as early as the turn of the 20th century. It's named after actually, um, I forget his first name, but he was a, um, a mining, he was a miner, but he was a kind of a, one of the first to explore some of the, the deeper valleys of the Clackamas River drainage, which is what Bagby Hot Springs is a part of. This is on the far southern end of Mount Hood National Forest, by the way. Um, and so he would go out on his horse by himself and he would go and he would take notes on these areas and he would just kind of see what was out there, mainly, mainly looking for good mining claims. But um, he discovered, quote unquote discovered, um, places like Bagby Hot Springs. He named them. And um, they, the Forest Service developed a guard station in, I think it was 1902 or something, that was um, one of the first actually on on Mount Hood National Forest. And um, it was because it was already noted as something that Portlanders were interested enough to make that two to three day hike in. But to bring it up to the present now, you know, it's a space that actually one of the reasons why I haven't been up there yet is I tend to steer clear of crowds. (laughs) And um, ironically, Bagby Hot Springs is one as one of the most popular spaces is known for its crowds. So it's interesting to think about kind of, um, you know, the the road that was built up to Bagby was, um, as far as I know, it was actually commissioned by a logging company, which is another, you know, paradox built into that. But that road actually wasn't built into the 50s. So um, that's a space that, you know, really up until the post-war era was extremely hard to access, especially in the wintertime. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, so do you, so that road being built for logging purposes, um, do you, I mean, this is sort of a very detailed question, so mm-hmm. uh, feel free to say, um, <laughs> what are you talking about? But, uh, you know, is that something that, um, I guess became recreationally used pretty quickly because people had already known about it and, it, I mean, I could imagine if there's this magical place in the woods that people are going two or three days for, and then you're maybe not a big hiker, and you're like, oh, there's a road there now. Yeah. Um, I mean, was it 
pretty quickly turned into like, oh, that's the road to Bagby Springs. You know, I imagine that it was. This is actually um, one of the blind spots of my research right now. Um, Just kind of the way that I, you know, I started my thesis looking at the CCC and it's kind of blossomed into looking at roads in general in Mount Hood. Um, And so I imagine that it probably was. Um, One of the things that I am looking for in my research during this particular time period, kind of um, the opening up of the Clackamas River drainage to logging interests in particular, was um, at what point did these roads start to be used by the public? How early? I know that there was a um, there was a railroad grade that went from Estacada up to what is now the Oak Grove Fork, so kind of far up actually. But that was built for um, a hydroelectric power station, and it had a railroad on it that was for employees. But in the late 30s, in 1939, the railroad was actually ripped out of that, and the grade, which a grade is just kind of a fancy word for a road that isn't really more than just a dirt patch through through an area. Okay. Um, that that grade was opened up to the motoring public. So they could start driving up there, you know, at their own risk, <laughs> um, as early as 1939. To get up to um, Bagby in particular, you have to c- cross the Clackamas, which is a big deal because it's a big river. Um, so I'm not sure when the bridge was built for that. Um, but it was something that you see kind of um, conflicts between recreational and logging interests as early as, you know, the late 40s. I found a a great article in the Oregonian about um, citizens of of the city of Estacada, which for those unfamiliar is right at the mouth of the upper Clackamas River. So um, it really became a a logging town in the post-war era. Um, You see actually this in this article some of those um, conflicting interests actually rising to the surface where you have um, c- citizens of Estacada complaining about um, logging trucks rumbling down their streets destroying their roads that sort of thing so um, yeah there's it's it, there's a long history of kind of the competing interests yeah. All right, thanks. Well, now that we're kind of moving into the direction of talking about sources and sources that you've been looking at for your thesis, we thought Joshua and I would like to share some interesting resources that we found that document the CCC's work, specifically on roads. Um, unfortunately, we can't tell, and nor did the source tell us where this um, resource is from. Um, but what we're going to be sharing with you are the audio from some video clips from archive.org, which are produced by the U.S. Department of Agriculture back in 1939 to sort of promote and educate the public regarding um, the work of the CCC. So here is a glimpse of the sounds of 1939. Enrollees in the CCC 
do more than a hundred different kinds of jobs, ranging from planting tiny seedlings to the erection of large bridges. Large bridges are built by the CCC only when the projects are isolated and local skilled labor is not available. This crew has arrived at the site of a bridge. The engineer introduces them to the transit, key instrument in construction, and they look at the plans which are meaningless to most of them, but which they will later understand. Although a majority of the enrollees have never done work like that done in the CCC, and many have held no jobs whatever, they work with enthusiasm, and under trained supervisors, most of them develop into fine workers. The story of the construction of a large bridge presents an excellent view of how the enrollee may apply himself, and, trained by his foreman, learn to do good work and prepare himself for future employment. Safety ropes along the sides are inspected regularly while the deck is being laid. The deck consists of heavy planks set on edge. Part of the crew places the planks and starts the spikes. Then the hammerman comes along. And with one stroke of a sledgehammer, well, nearly always just one, he drives them home. And can he smack them? Looks easy, doesn't it? Well, you just try it sometime to see how easy it is. Now the job is completed, and the day for the dedication has arrived. The bridge makes possible the road that opens an isolated forest area. It provides a way to bring out timber and a way to take in fire control equipment and crews. It serves forest communities in many ways. It brings people closer together, another link in the chain of progress. And here's the crew, all dressed up for the show. A strong, healthy, happy bunch of boys. They have whipped a hard job, and now they're ready for another one. So again, that video, audio from the video, is from 1939. Taylor, tell us what you heard in that um, and how it relates to what you've been studying. Yeah, well, uh, one of the one of the things that I've I've um, had a problem with researching the CCC is there's so much primary source material available on it because it was really, I mean, it's it's one of the most beloved of the New Deal era projects or excuse me programs. Um, and it's favored very well in, um, in retrospect. So there's a lot to look at there. I, I think one of the biggest things is um, kind of conveying this, um, the ideas about road building to young men who had never encountered that sort of work before, or at least um, not that type of application of their labor. A lot of them were... Um, from the East Coast were from, from urban areas like Philadelphia or New York, or they came from, from farms or whatever, but a lot of them were not from Oregon. 
And um, so that's that's one of the big things that I hear in that one. Uh, there's also, you know, it ends with um, talking about kind of progress, this idea of progress. And that's really, um, that's that's the way that the CCC is, is seen still today is this momentous occasion for the progress of, of, um, of our country, you know? And, um, one of the interesting things, particularly about the fact that that comes from 1939 is at that point, there were a couple of very vocal foresters, such as Bob Marshall, who were actually, um, taking issue with the sorts of work that the CCC were doing at that time, crushing rock and, you know, building bridges and, and those providing access. And so Bob Marshall, just to give a little background was, was someone who was, um, who was one of the most vocal proponents of roadlessness. He was one of the most vocal proponents of this idea of wilderness before it necessarily crystallized into the popular wilderness movement. So, um, you know, it's easy to identify those sorts of, um, kind of anachronistic qualities in the understanding of what the CCC were doing when we're looking at it from, you know, uh, 80 years down the road as we are now. Um, but it's really, I think that video, um, shows very well, a lot of the, the more technical aspects of what these, these young men were learning. Um, some of the, the different issues about labor, different issues about, um, kind of, their understanding of what they were doing. And it just gives insight into um, some of the more idealistic um, notions of, of how, um, how what they were doing was conceived of and was presented to the general public. Um, so we had briefly talked about this uh, before, um, before the interview. And I guess part of the show is, you know, bringing some of those conversations into the studio you know, I don't want to derail too much, um, but, you know, there's a lot of ideas about masculinity that are sort of sure. tied to the CCC. De- I mean, you can hear it in the video, the hammer man and like mm-hmm. um, just sort of idealizing this like um, sort of manly work that um, I guess in, you know, from my understanding, probably uh, left women in the sidelines, at least in this field of work. Mm-hmm you know, maybe, maybe there aren't any, but I'm wondering if there are any notable women that were involved in the CCC's work. So the CCC, um, another kind of anachronism of the CCC is the fact that it was, um, exclusively male. It was also predominantly white. There were a couple of camps that were, um, open to African Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans, that sort of thing. Um, but they were, um, they were young men between particular ages, um, usually somewhere around 16 to 30 or so. There were veterans camps as well. But there were a lot of ideas of masculinity um, that were ingrained in, in kind of what they're doing. And, and in, in labor, especially um, kind of early 20th century labor in general, um, you see a lot of <clears throat> um, pictures of them working with their shirts off, talking about um, kind of the manly camaraderie that's involved in what they're doing. And that's something that um, kind of harkens back to 
kind of um, Teddy Roosevelt progressive era style masculinity of men um, learning to um, be become you know real men by interacting with nature by going out and um, spending some time swinging tools um, turning natural resources into um, products or um, infrastructure. So there's a lot of um, kind of uh, unconscious sorts of masculinist discourse that goes into it. And um, it's ironic, again, um, because in the New Deal era, you see this championing of labor. Um, But something that they don't note is that before the New Deal era, especially during the Columbia River Highway, the construction of the Columbia River Highway, what they were using was actually prison labor, which were which were also predominantly men, exclusively men. And um, but I imagine they probably didn't have necessarily the, those um, those racial restrictions as well. Sure. Um, but there's you know, there's a lot of different ideas of masculinity um, involved in these um, historical time periods, especially with something like road construction that is so labor intensive. So it's not that the, that women didn't take part in the CCC, but in terms of how um, the program is celebrated, it's seen as this, you know, club of boys. Sure. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Well, Taylor, you're doing some interesting research right now, and I wanted to ask you about it. You you are you received a scholarship from OSU. I wanted can you tell us a little bit about what you did this summer to work on this thesis? Yeah, um, so OSU Oregon State down in Corvallis has a really fantastic um, resident scholar program um, that provides funding for doing research in their special collections um, located at their library on campus. And a lot of the primary sources that I was going to be looking at anyways were located in their archives, uh, particularly in one collection that's called the Gerald Williams Collection, which Gerald Williams was um, a historian for the U.S. Forest Service, uh, I believe in the 80s and 90s. And he was also just kind of a a big collector of um, all sorts of what's called ephemera of Forest Service um, years, meaning, you know, uh, pins, badges, um, brochures, maps, those sorts of things. And so a lot of what I was doing down there was just kind of digging through his boxes of stuff that he collected. And it's wonderful. It's It really, I was down there for a month um, in August and September. <clears throat> and it was it was great to be able to focus on nothing but this research. So I would go in in the morning, I'd have a list of boxes that I wanted to look at, and I would just take my time with each source, take pictures, find, um, you know, particularly pointed quotes, um, that sort of thing. And so a lot of the conclusions that I am formulating are as a result of that month. And um, as a side note, or I guess as part and parcel of what I'm talking about, so kind of the the trade-off with them providing funding for me to go down there is that I'm going to be giving a talk about um, my research, what I found down there. 
And so I'm planning on talking about kind of the value of, um, in particular, uh, visual primary sources. Because historians tend to work with textual documents because you can actually read what people were saying. Um, but I'm, I'm also very interested in <clears throat> the pictures that people were taking, the ways that they were um, ascribing space, mainly in, in like highway roadmaps and that sort of thing. So I will be talking probably in January. I haven't set a uh, definite date yet because I'm working on it. But in, in January or February about um, some of the, the, the fascinating things that, that I uncovered. And uh, hopefully it will be visually stimulating as well. There's, I mean, one of the, 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 the best things that they have in this particular collection is um, Gerald Williams was a big collector of picture postcards which were a huge thing in the teens and 20s. And you have all these incredible, beautiful photographs of um, the Columbia River Highway just in the, the 10 or, or, or uh, 15, 20 years after it was constructed. And some of them show cars in them. Some of them show people in them. Some of them show like Multnomah Falls, that sort of thing. But they really illustrate well, I think, the way in which this road was conceptualized. And um, that's one of the most interesting things that I'm trying to argue in my thesis, I think, is um, kind of that change from how roads were idealized in the progressive era and how they became demonized later down the road. Again, I've made that pun too many times, but <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Well, thank you, Taylor, for joining us today, and we look forward to hearing about uh, your thesis when you finish it, and also about that presentation we'll be doing in January. Thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, really appreciate it. I, I wish we had more time to talk with you. I might have to have you back down here to <laughs> go a little bit more into the thesis process next year. Yeah, give me a couple months, and then I'll have more <laughs> stuff to talk about. <laughs> sure. Uh, thanks again, Taylor. Yeah. So you will be able to find the the links to the audio slash video that we just played earlier in the show on our Facebook page. Um, but again, that is all the time that we have for today. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in KPSU's studio. Music in this episode from Brian Eno, Harold Budd, Talk Demonic, and the Magnetic Fields. You can follow us on Facebook or hear other episodes of Beyond Footnotes by visiting kpsu.org or going to pdx.edu slash history. Signing off, this has been Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Thank you for listening.